Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Uh, with that, let's turn to God's Word, to Romans 8, as we continue our series, uh, and we prepare to hear from the Lord. Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba. Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your spirit that you give us. We come here expectantly. We come humbled knowing that you give grace to the humble. You oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And Father, we need your grace. So would you work now in this time? Would you reveal yourself to us? Would you convict us of sin? Would you deepen our love and trust and confidence in you? Would you quicken our repentance, our turning to you? Would you work for your glory in our hearts? And Father, we pray for Peter and his family too, that you would comfort and strengthen and sustain, that you would bring a quick and full healing, an enduring healing that that gives life and health and wholeness. So Father, please do work in us through this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the ways that sports serve us is they remind us that failure and futility are part and parcel of life in a fallen world. And so in basketball, if you miss six out of ten three-pointers, you're considered to be a very good three-point shooter. And in baseball, if you go up to bat and seven out of ten times you do not get a hit, you're considered to be among the best hitters in the league. And these are failure rates achieved by grown men who've spent a lifetime in training and who get paid millions of dollars to do so. So consider what it must be like for a young boy in his first season of baseball who's played multiple games and has yet to get a hit. Every game he gets up to bat and, and he goes and, 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 he, and then he goes and he sits down disappointed and discouraged by his failure. And then his next turn comes, and he he approaches it with a mix of hope and dread. And then three strikes later, he sits down again. And this goes on at bat after at bat, game after game. And soon, in his very bones, he feels his total inability to hit a baseball. Until one, one day, he steps up to bat, and he closes his eyes, and he swings, and he makes contact and wonder of wonder the ball leaps off the bat into the outfield for a single and so what does this young boy do 
Well, he drops his bat and he turns to his parents and he covers his mouth and he stares in bewilderment. And what do his parents and everyone else do? They yell, run! Right? Until he turns around and heads over to first base. You see, in in hitting the ball, he had left one state of being, failure, for another, hitter. And that new state was so unfamiliar and so unexpected, he didn't even know what to do. He, He wasn't prepared for the privileges and responsibilities that come from being a person who is able to hit a baseball. All he had known was failure and defeat. There's a a rough analogy to the Christian life in there for us. Before we come to Christ, our moral life is one of entire defeat. In fact, the failure is so full and so comprehensive that we're not even fully aware of it. We're kind of dumb to how lost and sinful we are apart from Christ. We, We have times where we're more or less aware that we're being proud or selfish or that we're lying but we can also be quite good at explaining those things away. And then one day, God in his mercy sends someone to share the gospel with us, to share the good news of his son Jesus who came to live a perfect moral life and to die an unjust death so that moral failures like us could be rescued from eternal death and from the wrath that we've earned And as that news is shared with us, these words, these historical realities, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. He he changes us. He causes us to appreciate the wonder of what we're hearing. The Spirit takes us from death to life. And as we receive a new heart, we're enabled to respond trustingly to this amazing news. We hear about Jesus And we believe in who he is and and what he's done to save sinners. And in that moment, we become Christians. In that moment, our status changes. We go from enemies of God under his just wrath to beloved children of God, forgiven and counted righteous in Christ. We go from spiritually dumb and dead to spiritually alive and responsive. We go from slaves of sin to servants of Christ. We go from orphans to sons. And I use the masculine there intentionally because in the Bible, the inheritance was passed down through the sons. That's actually part of our passage today. And so in that sense, all of God's children are sons. We are recipients of a great inheritance. We've been united to the one true son, and in and through him we receive his inheritance. But after doing that, the Spirit doesn't immediately pluck us out from the earth and take us right into the eternal state. To be a Christian in this life is to live in between two states simultaneously, the already and the not yet. We have already received the pardon for our sins. We've already received the gift of Christ's righteousness, but we have not yet experienced fully the glorification that awaits us. Jesus has not yet returned. His kingdom has not yet been fully consummated. And so we live our days in this tension, both receiving the the grace and the blessings that he lavishes on us and awaiting the free and full and final blessing of being in and enjoying his presence forever. And that tension plays out especially in our moral lives. Jesus came to defeat sin and death. And he did. 
decisively and comprehensively. And when we turn to Christ, he rescued us from our slavery to sin. He, he purchased our pardon. He broke the chains of sin's enslaving power. But we have not yet experienced the full liberation of sin's presence in our lives. Sin so easily entangles us, as the author of Hebrews tells us. And so the Christian life is warfare. It's a battle against remaining sin and its desire to enslave us. As we've seen the past few weeks, Paul's been addressing that very problem in Romans 8. He's, he's shown how Christ has freed us from all condemnation. Some of the sweetest words in all of Scripture, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's shown us how God has done what we we're powerless in ourselves to do. He, he's contrasted for us life in the flesh, which is hostile to God, which cannot obey God, which always leads to death, and life in the spirit, which actually wants to please God and can actually obey him. Because of the work of the spirit of God, Christians have real resurrection life in our bodies. We have been freed from sin's dominion. And all of that sets the stage for our text today and for the message of these six verses. Fight as sons to receive the son's reward. That's the message of this passage to us. Fight as sons to receive the son's reward. In this passage, Paul leverages our, our status, our new status as God's children in our battle against sin. And as we're going to see, he, he ends with a glorious promise. So we're going to unpack this call to us in two points. First is the nature of our battle. Verse 12 begins by restating and reestablishing what Paul has been arguing in Romans 8. We are not in debt to the flesh. We have no obligation to the flesh. The flesh has no right to command our obedience. And you'll remember from verse 7 that the flesh is, is the sinful nature that is hostile to God. It is insubordinate. It cannot submit to God. It is impotent. It cannot submit to God. So the flesh is anti-God. It's a declaration of independence from God. And it's directly contrary to a righteous, humble, loving, holy life. And then Paul gives this very sobering warning. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. He's not mincing words here. It was in commenting upon this very verse that John Owen wrote his very memorable phrase, be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is a very clear and sobering caution. Rebellion against God leads to death. In a very real sense, rebellion against God is death. Because to rebel against God is to deny our creator and sustainer. It's to push back against who he made us to be and, and how he's designed us to live. And so sin is always an act of insanity. It's doing something that we can be certain leads to death and destruction. But then Paul writes, if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So there are two very clear options. Live according to the flesh and die. Or live by the Spirit, fighting against the flesh 
and receive life. And if you're wondering what he, what he might mean by deeds of the body, Colossians 3.5 gives us some examples. He says, put to death, therefore, and notice he uses that same phrase, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These are the kinds of self-centered desires and actions that those rejecting God's authority turn to in the search for pleasure, for happiness. If you refuse to submit to the one true God, you will turn to idols like these. It's inescapable. And these idols are cruel taskmasters. But because Christians have experienced a decisive break with sin, we are no longer debtors to the flesh. We don't have to do these things. We can actually walk in obedience to God and put sin to death. And as we do, we live. We thrive. We flourish the way God designed us to be. But I want to make sure that we notice something important here. Do you see how death is on both sides of the equation? Sin leads to death, meaning it leads to our physical death in this age and then ultimately to the eternal torments of hell. And so that connection between sin and death is clear. But righteousness also entails a kind of death. Righteousness demands that we put to death the deeds of the body. We need to understand that putting sin to death means self-denial. It means crushing some of our most deeply held desires. It It means resisting things that seem so attractive, so rewarding. Jesus spoke that way, of course, in Luke 9, 23, He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Isn't this the very opposite message that we hear all around us today? The world tells us to look within to find our true identities. It tells us to look within to find true happiness, to determine what will make us happy and to give ourselves to that. It tells us to look within to define right and wrong and and good and evil and beautiful and ugly. That's why putting sin to death is so very hard. Because it, it involves a turning away from ourselves. It involves a denial of what may seem to be life itself. Rosaria Butterfield talks about this in her Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She considered herself to be very happy and fulfilled as a lesbian. She had a network of of meaningful relationships and very rewarding work. But then in the providence of God, she came in contact with some Christians who gave her a Bible and she began to read the Bible. And as she read the Bible and as she heard the gospel, and in her words she said, the Bible within me became larger than I. She realized that lesbianism was not her biggest problem. It was the fruit of her biggest problem, which was pride. She had insisted on trying to define and live life according to her own terms. And as God's word had its way within her, her eyes were open to the arrogance and destructiveness of her rebellion. That's why the language here in Romans 8 is so extreme. We're not trying to manage sin. We're not trying to minimize sin or to soften its effects. We are called to put sin to death, to crush the pride that would dare to stand over and against God. If we don't, if we 
toy with sin, we are fools. Owen talked about this in his mortification of sin. He said there's two results of what he called unmortified sin in the life of the Christian. The first is that it weakens the soul, depriving it of its vigor, right? When we don't put sin to death, it zaps our strength. It takes away our vigor. And secondly, it darkens the soul, depriving it of comfort and peace. When, when you keep sin around and try and work with it, you find that your sense of peace diminishes, your sense of God's comfort and grace in Christ. So we must not trifle with sin, thinking that we can keep it around and keep it on a leash. The only proper Christian response to sin is battle to the death. In fact, that's the best understanding of what Paul means in this next verse, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you pull that verse out of context, you might think that Paul's talking about those who have strong, subjective senses of what they're supposed to do in life, that they're led by the Spirit of God. But that connective word, for, ties these two phrases together. So where and how does the Spirit lead God's people? How do we identify those who are led by the Spirit? Well, we see it in their growth in Christian virtue and especially in their putting sin to death. Look at these verses again. If, this is the second part of verse 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the Spirit leads us into warfare against sin. He leads us to fight to mortify sin so that we can live as God's sons. And and don't miss the significance of that phrase. Those who are led by the Spirit, that is, those who put sin to death, they are sons of God. Sons. Not servants. Sons. And we're going to see that more in our second point. That's why we must fight as sons to receive the Son's reward. Which brings us to the second point, which is the gifts of our reward. One well-known principle of warfare is that there's a decided advantage on the side of those who are fighting to defend their homeland. And so you see that in the Revolutionary War. As the Americans fought off the British, you see that in Vietnam and the difficulty in fighting over there. I think we're seeing that now in Ukraine as a smaller and apparently weaker Ukrainian army seems to be successfully resisting a much stronger Russian army. When you're fighting for your home and you're fighting for your loved ones, there's an increased urgency to the battle. You fight harder because more is at stake. Well, here too, there's a rough analogy to the Christian life. Paul urged the Romans to fight sin, to put it to death. And beginning in verse 15, he's going to identify some some gifts that Christians have received that affect us in our battle against sin. As those who've received a new identity, a new homeland, our battle against sin is a battle against an invader who is seeking to attack our home. And just as we find all throughout Scripture, we're not called to mere moralism in this battle against sin. It is never, the commands in Scripture are never, just do it. Just do this. Just fight. Instead, it is the indicative of the gospel, the objective truth of who Jesus is and what he did that informs and motivates and empowers the imperative, the command of our war against sin. 
So in these three remaining verses, we're going to see how Paul highlights four gospel gifts that speak to our new status, our new home, and then he calls us to battle from our new vantage point, to fight for what we now hold dear. The first is the gift of adoption. In verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul's making a very important gospel connection here. He, he's called us to fight against sin and to put it to death. And the, the temptation of the Christian heart is to think that we can do that but by just buckling down and trying harder. To think that if we just somehow take it more seriously, that we'll be more successful in our battles against sin. But there's a, a misunderstanding of the nature of Christian growth in that response. Because just as we're saved by grace, So we're also sanctified by grace. Notice he says it's by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. So the only true and lasting change that happens in the Christian life is fully and finally attributable to the grace of God alone. That's why Paul offers this contrast here. The spirit of slavery drives us to fear. Right? We sense the noose of the law around our neck as it right, rightly points to our many failures and the punishment that we deserve. But Paul says, you didn't receive that spirit. You're not slaves. You're not debtors to the flesh. The Lord does not call you to fight against sin from a position of fear. Instead, he says, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. You no longer belong to the family of those who live in rebellion against God. You've been brought by the blood of Jesus into the very family of God. You are now his beloved son. And so your battle against sin is not from a position of fear, but it's the position of a son fighting for his beloved homeland. It's a son who's been well provisioned by his father, who's assured of his father's faithful love and protection. Our fight against sin is is fight from a well-entrenched position of grace. So we do not fight to earn the favor of God. We fight because we've received the favor of God. And I think that's why he makes that next connection here to our prayers. Those who are insured of God's favor as Father go quickly and gladly to him with our burdens and our struggles and our sins because we are confident that will receive a positive response. So Abba is the Aramaic word for father. It's the word Jesus would have used because he he primarily spoke Aramaic. And so the prayer here is just father, father. It's Aramaic and it's Greek, right? It's like a child running excitedly into the room, daddy, daddy. Those who've experienced God's grace best and most deeply come back for it most often. We're eager to tell our Father our news. We're eager to turn to Him trustingly. As Calvin wrote, For we must ever hold fast this principle, that we do not rightly pray to God unless we are surely persuaded in our hearts that He is our Father, when we so call Him with our lips. To this there is a corresponding part, that our faith has no true evidence except we call upon God. What does faith do? It calls upon the Father. So the doctrine of adoption is meant to affect us and to impart in us such confidence that we stand in the favor of God because of Jesus Christ 
that we delight to come to him quickly and repeatedly. And that includes especially after our failures and our battles against sin. If you're a Christian, you have a loving and gracious Father who gives grace to the humble infallibly. Go to him. Go to him. The second gift that Paul mentions is the gift of assurance. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In many ways, this is a reflection on the gift of adoption. Those who cry to God as their father are experiencing the fruit of assurance. As we come to our father who has gladly adopted us into this family, we find that his spirit is at work in us. And what is the spirit doing? He's assuring us that we are God's children. He's reminding us. He's remolding us so that we think and feel and will as those who have been marked by this new status, this new identity, this new belonging that we've received. So have you trusted in Jesus? If you have, you are God's child, period. You are God's child. It is who you are. You didn't and you don't earn that identity. You received it as a gift. And the Father has also given you the Spirit in part so that he can continue to remind you that you are his. So he can continue to impress upon you the power and wonder of his love so that you can be transformed into the depths of your soul. And and then from that transformation, you put to death sin. And from that transformation, you walk in newness of life. So the Lord means for us to be assured, to be competent, to be at peace in our status as his children. And the Spirit has been given to remind us over and over again of that status. He will never leave us or forsake us. We are children of God. Third is the gift of inheritance, verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So it's not enough that we've been brought into God's family. We also receive an inheritance We receive immeasurable riches and blessings. We have inexhaustible resources. We face an unimaginably good future. We have everything to look forward to. And even in the present, we're experiencing the blessings of this inheritance. And as with every other blessing in our lives, how how do we receive this inheritance? How does it come? It comes to us through union with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ. It's because you're in him that you have an inheritance. And yet again, we see that gospel truth that we are not treated as we deserve. We're treated as he deserves. And fourth and finally then is the gift of glorification. Continuing verse 17, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so clearly, before we talk about glorification, we need to address this suffer with him part. That phrase surprised you as you're reading along there. It seems like Paul's stacking up blessings one on top of another, almost like a ladder. And you're getting almost to the very pinnacle to to see this full vista of glory. And then he throws in this negative condition. He says, provided we suffer with him. And then he links it to our receipt of glorification. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
And so suffering with Jesus is crucial. What could he mean? Why does he raise it here? It would be easy to read this as saying it's, it's some sort of penance that we do to, to pay for our sins, that we're saved through suffering that way. Or that it's a purgatory that we have to endure to be purged, to be purified, to be cleansed. But that cannot be Paul's point. And, and actually next week's, uh, the next passage that we get to will make that clear. So I don't want to steal the thunder of that. But I think the, the link to suffering here has at least a twofold purpose. So first, it acknowledges the nature of life in a fallen world. Suffering is all around us. It is inevitable. It is inescapable. And fallen life is hard. It is a life of suffering. And in that difficulty, there are many temptations to despair. Many temptations to despise God. Many temptations to think that he's not good, that he's not with me, that his arm's too short, that he's somehow torturing me or punishing me. And so I think the call to suffering is saying, no, no, this is, this is a reality of life in a fallen world. And so persevere in faith. Persevere in faith. And secondly, it acknowledges the nature of the sinful desires that Paul is calling us to put to death. Remaining sin in our lives means that we're easily led to a proud and sinful independence, thinking that we can basically save ourselves. We've done it on our own. And so part of the Lord's purposes in suffering is clearly to bring us to a place of desperation. You see this again and again in Scripture and in church history. To bring us to a place where we cry out, Father, help me. Right? I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to overcome this sin. I feel powerless before it. I don't know how to hope in the midst of this suffering. I feel like I'm despairing of life itself. And so the Lord uses suffering to draw us to himself and to give us more of himself because it's in our suffering, and you see this in Psalm 34, that we taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Right? And as we often point out, when do you need refuge? Not when things are going well. When do you feel your need for refuge? When would this sort of exclamation escape from your lips? When you feel the desperation of your situation? Where you feel the storm is so overwhelming, you don't know how you're going to make it. And you fly to the Lord for refuge. And He meets you and He saves you and He protects you and He sustains you. And you taste and see that He is good. So we must not despise our sufferings. We must see them as opportunities to turn again and again to our good Father. We also recognize that our sufferings are temporary. They will not last. Better days are coming. Even if we're being persecuted for following Christ, we know that something far greater awaits. And, and Peter wrote about this in his first epistle. He said, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when? When his glory is revealed. So when are the better days coming? When the glory of Jesus is revealed. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that day will be like? When the glory of Jesus is put on full display for all to see. I ask Joel and the band to come up. A day is coming. And we pray, Lord, may it be soon when Jesus will return. 
And when he does, we will all be brought into his very presence. And those who rejected Jesus will be judged. They will be sent to eternal torment in hell where the flame is not quenched and the worm does not die. That will be a place of unimaginable darkness and despair. But the dead in Christ will be raised and and their new and glorified bodies will be reunited with their souls. And those living disciples of Christ will be transformed in a moment into their new glorified selves. And we will be received into glory. We will have perfect and pain-free bodies. We will have righteous and sin-free souls. And everything that we think and feel and want will be pure and good and holy. There will be no sorrow. There will be no tears. There will be no deformity. There will be no loneliness. There will be no conflict. There will be no suffering. There will be no rebellion. And we will be in and we will enjoy the very presence of our happy God. And we will finally know peace and rest and joy that is unimaginable in this earthly life. This life is a life of sorrow and suffering. In that life, there is no suffering. So we must endure the the suffering and the sorrows of this age. We must fight against sin, putting it to death, so that we can receive the blessings of the age to come. We must turn repeatedly and confidently to our good Father so we receive all of the grace that we need to persevere in faith and to live our lives for His purposes and for His glory. We must, in a word, trust Jesus. He is our supply of grace. He is our older brother who secured our salvation and then welcomes us into His inheritance. So are you discouraged by your sin? Do you feel powerless and weak in the face of it? Stop looking within yourself for change. Turn to Christ. As you've trusted in him, you've been adopted. You have the assurance of his love by his spirit. You've received the blessings of his inheritance. And so you can approach him with confidence. Don't look within, look without. Turn to Christ. Or are you wearied by your sorrows and sufferings? Do you feel the vanity, the futility of life? Don't wallow in self-pity and and don't just seek out distractions. Turn to Christ. As you endure suffering with faith, you can and should have full confidence that you are on the path to glory. A better future does await you. His purposes will not be thwarted. His promises are certain and secure. And so go to him and find rest for your weary soul. Whatever your challenge is, the prescription is clear. Turn to Christ. Cry out for his grace. Press on in obedience. He will sustain you. He will strengthen you to the very end. This life is war. That's why we fight as sons. And very amazingly, we receive the Son's reward. Let's pray. For more information, head to our website 
at crosswaypa.org.